0: You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show turns a different corner of life in Brooklyn and delivers stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And while we wait for things to turn around, we'll be six feet apart at the intersection of immunity and incumbency on a corner we've been calling 1920.
1: be good to have some kind of a term you know yeah. for this like this crisis series that we're doing I feel like if it's just Brooklyn I yeah yeah
2: I don't know if I agree what... could it just be more like in the like the episode title it's like you know yeah. for all these episodes that we're going to be doing focusing on COVID things it'll be like Brooklyn USA COVID response or you know whatever
3: um I I came up with a really silly name um I don't know how I can tell it to them Emily because it's, a, it's a um
1: like... wait there's a chat feature
3: oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll put it in the chat <laughs> you put it in the chat um yeah. this is my name for the show now if you can see that yeah um
4: We must go even higher. Uh, 17. Uh, 19.
5: Could it be uh, 20. twenty? It's the number twenty,
1: nineteen twenty, hyphen
5: nineteen, comma, apostrophe twenty.
1: Hyphen, a short dash or line used to connect two words or separate one. A short pause between two syllables in speaking. A small connecting link. From Greek hyphen, meaning together in one, literally under one. From hypo, under, and hen, one. History. The first known documentation of the hyphen appears in the grammatical works of Dionysius Thrax. In Greek, these tie marks were known as ennodakon and used to join two words that would otherwise have been read separately. With the advent of letter spacing in the Middle Ages, the hyphen reversed its meaning. Rather than waste expensive parchment, scribes used the mark to connect two words that had been incorrectly spliced by a space. The modern hyphen originated with Johannes Gutenberg. Gutenberg's regimented blocks of movable type did not allow for a sublinear hyphen. He moved the mark to the middle of the line. Nineteen. Comma. A punctuation mark used to separate the smallest numbers of a sentence. Also used to separate figures and symbols in arithmetic. Break of continuity. Interval. Pause. From the Greek, comma, clause in a sentence. Also, stamp, coinage. Literally, piece which is cut off. History. In the 3rd century BCE. A librarian named Aristophanes invented a system of single dots that separated verses and indicated the amount of breath needed to read each fragment of the text. In the 1490s, Italian printer Aldus Manutius originated the semicircular modern comma. The modern comma is descended from a diagonal slash used from the 13th to 17th centuries to represent a pause. Manutius is also credited with originating italics and the semicolon. Apostrophe. The sign used to indicate the omission of a letter or letters. It came from the Greek apostrophe, meaning the act of turning away, from apo, off, away from, strephine, to turn, and was used as a rhetorical term to describe the moment when a speaker would turn from the audience to address, typically, an absent or dead person. History. The apostrophe probably originated in 1509 in an Italian edition of Petrarch, or, in 1529, at the hand of French printer Geoffrey Torrey, who is also credited with inventing the accent and the cindilla.
5: Twenty. Hyphen. Nineteen. Comma.
1: Apostrophe.
5: Twenty.
2: Nineteen. Twenty! Good
5: job!
3: It's like the election and the virus. I really like punctuation. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I haven't been sleeping very well. I don't know.
0: And that, if you are asking, is how we got stuck on the corner of symbols and syntax. Today, it's May 15th. We're still reeling from the feeling of the wave of 1920. And this week, we're down to
5: zero in Brooklyn, USA.
1: Nina Afridi is a policy director for the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development. She's also a trained city planner and a writer. In the last episode of our sister series, M-Train, she talks about losing her father, the geography of death in a pandemic, and how gentrification and COVID-19 have complicated burials in New York City. You can listen to the full conversation on this week's episode by searching for M-Train Brick Radio or by tuning into the See Something, Say Something podcast. M-Train is hosted and produced by Ahmed Ali Akbar and me, Shirin Barghay.
4: My dad was kind of a dandy. He loved fancy clothes, but we had very little money. He was kind of an old-school Pakistani guy in a way that is not always represented. He was very
6: feminine.
4: He just was kind of a man about town. He's a little bit of a hustler. He was involved in everything. If you ever asked me what he did for a living, I wouldn't be able to tell you because he did so many different things throughout the course of his life. Um, He died uh, January 12, 2019, after a 10 year battle with vascular dementia. Um, And so you're watching the person that you love and care for start to fade away. Figuring out how to bury him and where to bury him was, it was not as tough of a decision as it could have been only because the circumstances made it so that there weren't very many options. It's not a secret to anyone that land in New York City is incredibly, incredibly expensive. It's New York's biggest asset. When we think about land in New York, we're thinking about real real estate in the form of apartments and um, residential buildings and sometimes commercial buildings. But what we forget about is that you need land to bury somebody. It's very difficult to find a Muslim cemetery in New York City. Washington Memorial cemetery, which is where my dad is buried, uh, out on Long Island in Suffolk County. It was one of the few places that was doing ecumenical um, burials. So there were non-denominational, non-religious burials, and they offered this service to uh, religious minorities as well. It's about two hours from where I grew up, an hour and a half, two hours, give or take, depending on traffic. The one year of his death was on uh January 12th. So I hadn't gone back since then cuz there's no way I could have. It was it's so far. There's just and I don't know how to drive. Like I'm 33. I grew up in New York. I don't know how to drive. So I didn't go until January 12th and it's just so it just took so long and it takes when you're grieving, grief already takes so much out of you and to like make that trip when you're grieving for all of us it was so hard.
6: So when I'm hearing you talk about all like the people of color who are being sent far away from their homelands or where they lived rather in New York to be buried, it also is like I think grief and the expensiveness of grief in New York is also what's kind of shocking about that. Like how easy is it really to get to Hard Island to get, you know, out to uh, Long Island or Jersey, like for these for these communities, it's it's not super easy and you know, even even grief is expensive. Like, mm-hmm. how often have you been able to, to see your father Yeah, to his grave?
4: That's a really good point. Grief is very expensive. Um,
6: and racialized, I feel like, it, as well.
4: Yeah. It feels like just everyday people who keep New York running are getting pushed further and further out to its edges, and I see the same thing that's happening in life, and I see the same thing happening in death. I was working on a map, um, looking at Department of Health data that they just released on... Um, coronavirus cases and where the uh, where positive cases have been concentrated. And w- we've known this for a while, but Queens is the epicenter of coronavirus. And Elmhurst Hospital has been brought up many times, is the epicenter for coronavirus. And um, I want people to know that where Elmhurst Hospital is located is not the New York that is that you see on TV, right? This is where the people who have been made to be invisibilized live. This is where the people who make this city function and have always made the city function have lived. They're immigrants, they're people of color, they're poor people. And those are the people who are dying right now. I did this analysis looking at the service sector workforce in the neighborhoods that have highest the highest concentration of coronavirus cases. And across the five boroughs of New York, the neighborhoods that have a higher um, concentration of service sector workers are in the neighborhoods where there are higher concentrations of positive cases. Right. So these are the folks who are on the front lines every day. Those are your nurses' aides, those are your, those are your home health aides, it's food service workers, it's delivery workers. Those are the people who are the reason that New York hasn't honestly completely, totally collapsed at this point. Um, and those are the people who are dying, and those are the people who we aren't talking about. And I do think about that in the context of burial, and especially Muslim burial, because a lot of those people, a lot of those workers are Muslim workers. A lot of those workers are are Lyft drivers, or they're restaurant workers, or they work at the halal warehouse. You know, those are the people who are keeping new york running but they're also keeping muslim new york running which does have its own you know class and race divisions um and i worry i I very much worry about what it's going to look like when we have to bury our dead um for everyone but especially for muslims i i really really worry about that
0: When the outbreak hit New York, we made our first appointment with Mert Aragol, an emergency room doctor in a local Brooklyn hospital. He's checked in on us a few times since, but we hadn't heard from him in a while. So we tracked him down to hear how things were looking. And for once, they're looking up. Here's Mert.
6: You know, it's, it's, uh, things have uh, settled down and uh, the social distancing, also known as shutting down life as we know it, has worked. And we still get a few stragglers, but for the most part, it's, it's nothing like what it was at the beginning of the pandemic. That's the good news, I guess. The bad news is that we've only really gone through about 20% of the population of New York City. By most estimates, you know, an 80% of the population left to still contract the disease. So we expect another surge, at least one more surge. That's that's my understanding. And so that means there's a a huge iceberg of uh, people who haven't yet made antibodies, who are, uh, you know, poised to uh, become the next surge. And you can add me to that group of people who don't have antibodies. I got tested recently and much to my surprise my antibody test came back negative. I didn't have a positive PCR but I had a clinical syndrome and I had a negative antibody test so that either means that I didn't form antibodies or I didn't have the disease. PCR is a swab, the nasal swab. That's typically how they how they acquire it and that can tell you if you have active disease if you have a positive PCR and if you have clinical symptoms then chances are you have the disease and then most people form antibodies there's one line of thought that suggests that you can have the disease fight it off with your innate immune system and then you'll never form antibodies and so that is a possibility we just don't know but all things considered, it's better to have antibodies than than not, which you know um, give you a memory, a lasting memory of the antigen of the virus, so that next time it comes around, your your body's ready to act. You know the question is whether you have what's called neutralizing antibodies. Are the antibodies sufficiently robust and vigorous that you're going to be able to use those antibodies to recognize and fight off the virus when it comes back? The whole point, you know, getting back to the initial flatten the curve philosophy is to uh, slow down the number of cases, but let it sort of gradually work through the population. I mean, that's, that's one theory of how to deal with this virus. There's also the concern that the more people who get the virus, the more likely that you'll have some antigenic drift and, you know, mutations that'll cause any subsequent vaccine to you know only work for a certain percentage of the virus. There's always that concern. I mean, you could drive yourself crazy worrying about all the permutations and possibilities, but things look better now. And um, yeah, that's, that's good. I, the, the open question is whether they have made this sort of deliberate evil calculus that we really just want this thing to spread through the population, you know, do its damage and then let us move on for the sake of the country the economy. That's uh, one possibility. And the other possibility is complete incompetence and not really being able to uh, manage this pandemic in any reasonable way. So that's, that's another possibility. And maybe it's a mix of the two, I don't know. There is a half of this country that believes that the entire pandemic is either overblown, if not a complete hoax, you know? So as usual in America, we're not just trying to solve a problem, we're fighting over the very nature of, of reality itself. Even in New York, I imagine public pressure is gonna build to, okay, let's, let's kind of get on with it. The good news is that we've gone further than anywhere else in the country in terms of moving towards herd immunity that elusive herd immunity. It always makes me think of people running together in in groups, the herd. (laughs) I think, you know, our country doesn't have a great deal of experience with something like this. And in the East, in Japan and China and Korea, they've been through this many times and there is this culture of wearing masks. Even, you know, when somebody has the flu or a bad cold or whatever, you'll see people on the subway wearing masks. We don't really have that culture here. We did get caught by surprise here and it was a very confusing moment where nobody really knew what was going on. The virus kind of hit us all of a sudden and then the supply chains broke down. So we had this perfect storm where healthcare workers were uh, left unprotected dealing with these waves of of sick people coming in, coughing in their faces. And I had an experience where I was wearing a cloth mask. I had a cloth mask. And I was told to put that cloth mask on and then to put it in a paper bag and use it again and again. And on the fourth day, I took out that same cloth mask that I'd worn and put it on and went and saw patients. And and at some point I went to the bathroom and I noticed that I'd worn it backwards. And that was a a moment of, uh, it it was sort of shocking, but at that point, I I thought I already had the disease, so I wasn't that troubled by it. At the beginning, there were doctors in hospitals around the country that were told not to wear masks. And I'm not sure what the rationale was. And part of it was probably that there weren't enough masks to go around and it sent the wrong message to patients. Um, In hindsight, it was definitely the wrong thing to do. Ever since we got N95 masks, the number of cases of healthcare workers getting sick has really plummeted. And now we're sort of swimming in masks. They're everywhere. People are sending them to us. They're coming from China, from all over the world. So masks and personal protective equipment are not a problem. And we at our hospital have been permitted to sort of come up with our own solutions. So there's a guy who was uh, who was in Taiwan and uh, came back with this insane sort of setup that, it's sort of like Darth Vader. I mean, he has a mask that has its own speaker um, and uh, covers his whole head. It's, it's, It's really quite striking. So there's a diversity of solutions to this mask problem. People are still showing a lot of support and we certainly feel loved in the hospital. We're still getting meals sent to us, and, uh, and it's great. And we've just passed a, a phase of uh, some of the early early adopters of the disease, some of the early contractors of the disease, either dying or getting better, and so that, there was a emotional milestone that we kind of passed, and now it's a holding pattern. We're just waiting for, I guess, the next surge. In the meantime, we are getting an uptick in our regular traffic of people who've been holding out and sitting at home with you know, their medical problems and finally they couldn't wait any longer or maybe they felt safe to come back to the hospitals. People are not mixing, so they're not contracting communicable diseases. There aren't a lot of colds and coughs and that sort of thing. And uh, this is immunologically a bizarre time. People aren't getting into accidents. They're not fighting or shooting each other yet. And so we're not seeing a lot of trauma either. Yeah, the numbers are down, but there's certainly a cohort of people who are just sick or dying at home. One of the arguments that has been made in favor of opening up is to permit those people to get the care that they need, that maybe there's a cost to the lockdown that is unmeasured or un, you know people don't speak about. That guy showed up again, by the way, the brain tumor guy. I saw him on the board the other night and I saw him and I made a point of picking him up And uh, he'd gotten worse. He was having trouble picking things up and walking and he'd had a seizure. And so I said, listen, man, this is your, you, you have to get this taken care of. And it turned out it wasn't as much the COVID as just the entire idea of brain surgery. And he was kind of in denial about his condition, but it had gotten to the point where he had to recognize that he had this serious problem he said he was very afraid so I convinced him to uh, to, to get another MRI and, and to hopefully get admitted for brain surgery and so we sent him up for an MRI and when he when he was up in MRI he decided he didn't want another MRI so he came down again and then I convinced him again and then we sent him back up to MRI but at that point I would left so I don't know what happened with him I guess, I don't know what the moral is, but it's amazing how everything can just be pulled out from under you. Everybody must have a story. I mean, there must be so many stories. Just count your blessings.
1: Do you guys know how woodpeckers' tongues wrap around their brains? <laughs> do you know no.
7: about that?
1: Go I'm gonna send you an I
7: image feel like we do now. <laughs> uh,
3: can you tell us why they wrap around their brains in addition to how? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think wherefore? I think it has to do with like not like rattling their brain inside their little skull when they're like, you know, whatever, banging their head against a tree. Hang That's on, I'm incredible. gonna. This is just a little illustration.
3: That is disgusting. Wait a minute. Is that their tongue? That's their tongue. This is completely depraved.
5: That <laughs> is really yeah. something.
3: Ugh, oh. yuck. I am not okay with this. <laughs> Sorry. That is Sorry. So
1: gross.
3: Wow. I, ugh, I don't know why I'm so incredibly grossed out by that. Because it's like licking your own eye. I think yeah. is something that disgusts me
1: <laughs> conceptually.
3: <laughs> yeah, they have like a built-in mechanism for it?
1: Yeah, but sure. in the article that I linked in the chat, it says to prevent headaches, which I think is really cute. So they massage their brains <laughs> yeah. or something. Also,
3: like, do other birds get headaches?
5: <laughs> yeah. what, is, like, what is a headache what is for going
8: a <Yeah>. One of the first jokes I learned as a child involved woodpeckers.
1: It was like, <laughs> and I, like, I told it to my six-year-old nephew and he like rolled on the ground laughing. What do you call a woodpecker without a beak? A pecker. A headbanger. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <Not really. laughs> All right. It's it like banging. <laughs>
3: I know. Nice. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> Your six-year-old nephew had a reference for head banging that made that yeah. enjoyable. Yeah, interesting.
4: I think
1: like like he just pictured a woodpecker, just someone like banging their head. You know, like
3: that's
5: what. Yeah. That's amazing. Hello.
9: My name is Fumio Wakatsuki.
5: I live and work in Tokyo. Today, we found out that there are
9: over 200 people infected by coronavirus in Tokyo.
5: I barely go out and I don't get
9: enough
5: exercise. I'm very disappointed by the cruise ship cancellation
9: in May.
5: I telework now. In the beginning it was confusing
9: but I'm getting used
5: to it. My coronavirus rule is
9: do not go out.
5: I wear a mask when I go grocery shopping once a week and I wash my hands and
9: goggles after shopping.
5: I will adopt new rules if it is necessary. If I get new information
9: about coronavirus from the media, I tweet about
5: it. I believe sharing information
9: gives people a sense of security.
5: The growing number of infected
9: people worries me most.
5: It's been a tough day for healthcare workers. I try to prevent infection and
9: I follow the rules as best I can.
5: I many people are inconvenienced and their anxiety is growing. I'm sure there will be fun ahead and that I
9: will live my life.
5: I really hope that this resolves
9: quickly and that Everyone's anxiety fades.
1: All right, so we're here at Bangladesh Academy of
4: Fine Arts BAPA. And we've got a coalition of some incredible, incredible people here at BAPA. And with a team who've come in to help us out. And Sahi Thun being such a boss. (laughs) (laughs)
8: Hi everyone, how's it going? This is Tahitun Mariam coming to you live from the Bronx. I am joining you today to kind of speak about what's been going on in the Bronx. The Bronx has been disproportionately affected by coronavirus And um, being that there are so many working class communities here in the borough that have to continue working as essential workers or have to um, face the reality of navigating a really unfair medical system that disproportionately... That disproportionately affect a um, lot of the people that are in my own community. I live in the heart of the Bangladeshi community in the Bronx, and we've been very heavily impacted. Um, you just heard the noise of ambulances uh, that that we've been hearing every single day here in the borough. You know, it's been it's been hard. It's been very hard to kind of navigate. What's been going on, um, provide support to the people that really need it. So what I want to talk to you all about today is the Bronx Mutual Aid Network, which um, myself as well as some other volunteers have come together to create to provide support to people in the Bronx that really need it. We have a lot of undocumented families, elderly people, pregnant women, those who are living in um, domestic violence shelters, as well as just you know other um, transitional housing facilities. The Bronx Mutual Aid Network was formed about a month ago and um, we have been helping our neighbors and getting free groceries to them the way we have been doing this is by raising funds online through crowdfunding and then buying groceries in bulk or supporting some local businesses and um, getting these groceries and actually physically delivering them with the help of volunteers to um, the vulnerable people that really need it most. Let me show you what's in the bag. Absolutely. So, we have we have tuna fish, mm-hmm. we have some potatoes, we have tomatoes, we have rice, mm-hmm. we have some beans, and then we'll have some onions, some masalas for the Daisy family. No. And we are also going to put in one of the condensed milk
3: over
4: here. Can I get a condensed milk? Condensed milk for that job. <laughs>
8: People are requesting support through a Google Forms that form that we have. And um We've so far been able to help over 150 families all across the Bronx. We're hearing some of the most heartbreaking stories from people. Just last weekend, uh, myself and a volunteer went to go deliver groceries to a elderly man who just lost his wife um, the week prior to COVID-19. And, you know, he's this old Spanish-speaking man that was really one of the sweetest people and he just doesn't have family here. His um, kids live out of state and it's people like him that are vulnerable, that really need help and it's the basics of need that, they, that people are coming to us with for support and it's you know nutrition, s- sustenance. This is the gap we're trying to fill right now. Personally, my family has also been affected by the coronavirus. My um, grandmother actually passed away from COVID-19 about two weeks ago, Um, and a lot of my work relief work that I'm working on in the borough is a result of feeling helpless in her death and in her situation and seeing the injustices of her death because she was at one of the medical facilities here in the Bronx and you know medical workers are working day in and day day out to support our people but but still there's so much need in the borough um, and I feel that we couldn't do anything for her, but you know, if it had been any other time and she was just one of the few patients in the hospital, maybe she might have been saved. Um, but she lived a really long life, Alhamdulillah. It's Ramadan right now, so uh, my family is usually coming together every year around this time to have iftar, but... Obviously, due to COVID-19 affecting everybody, um, we're not able to do that. So a lot of the usual um traditions that we have and we hold, we're not able to really practice at this time. But, you know, I'm finding community. I'm finding love. I'm finding a lot of solidarity in other ways. In the Bronx, it's been... um absolute chaos in some ways because of the fact that, you know, systematically we have been ignored and we don't, you know, prior actually speaking to someone um, a couple of weeks ago, I found out that in the beginning of March, we found out that there was only 260 ICU beds in um, the hospitals in the Bronx, only 260 ICU beds in a borough with a population of 1.4 million. So numbers like that are really shocking. The reality of that is really shocking because it just means that those who are living in the borough, which majority of us, you know, are very working class, aren't able to even have a chance of survival. I hope you all are taking care of yourselves. You're really practicing social distancing because it's important. And also taking a moment to recognize that when we come out of COVID-19, whenever that may be, be, we um, should be looking for a new normal. We should be realizing that the systems that we've had in place have not been equitable, has not been um, fair racially. And I think there's a lot of conversations to be had about the systems that we, as taxpayers in this country, are supporting um, and how we're going to really reinvent a lot of these systems so that it works for all, us all instead of some. What are you putting
6: in
2: the bag? Um, I'm trading
6: parsley into There's the bag oh, We have apples, apples. We, have we have flour, lettuce. We have we're starting flour. off with uh, these 48
7: ounce bags of rice. Hey, my name's Timothy Etienne, and uh, I am a former Brickster, was an associate producer for Brick TV. edited a lot of things, made awesome television, still available on their YouTube channel, shameless plug, the quarantine, it's been crazy, um, been working from home at my current employment, uh, and I realized that um, not being on the train for two hours a day has is, is a afforded me uh, so much more time and with that time is so many video games i didn't know that i wanted to play this many video games apparently but that's how i'm coping uh lots of star wars some call of duty just lots of pew pew pews yeah lots of zoom chats with friends being like did you wake up before 12 today no that's so cool you know <laughs> But uh yeah, uh a lot of video games with friends has been really good, just always on the comms talking to the friends, like, Hey, wanna play some two V two in two K? two K, NBA two K they're like, Yeah Then I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna dunk on you They're like I miss dunking in real life <laughs> And then we're like, we've never dunked before. But anyways, uh, quarantine's been crazy. Crazy quiet. I live alone, so only people I see are the people out the window that I watch walking without mask and or gloves. And I'm like, put a mask on. And they're like, what you say? I'm like, please don't come up here. Uh, (laughs) And that's uh, some tips how to stay sane. Find something to do. For me, that's been Video Games. Uh, I started reading a book, and then I was like, why read when the audiobook could read to me while I play video games? Thanks, video games. You saved quarantine for me. Um, I've definitely called my family more, which has been really cool. My yearly goal was to call my parents more, and I think I've called them more than I have in the past year. So, cha-ching, New Year's resolution still on the rise. As an introvert, I'm an introvert, I love being inside, so this has been uh, very, very restful for me. But I think I will definitely make more of an effort to go to things. Because I I was a friend who used to say, yeah, I'm on my way. And I'd still be in bed and then be like, ah, the train didn't come. I'm just going to go home. I'll see you guys next time. I think uh, we'll make the effort to hang out with friends again. Be more attentive in conversation. Enjoy every moment outside a little bit more. Every concert, every production, every every moment. Take nothing for granted, right? That's what I learned. Also, I learned that I'm really good at video games. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You guys are the best.
2: Weekend weather is gripping. Weekend weather is gripping. Hey, everyone. It's Jimmy Chris City, talking about the weekend weather. Your city, Brooklyn, USA. It will be a very sunny weekend this weekend. Here's the report. Friday, high 85, low 63. It will be... In the morning, cloudy. And in the afternoon, sunny. Saturday, it will be 79 degrees. And the low will be 53 degrees. It will be mostly sunny that day. Sunday, high, 63. Low, 53. It will be partly cloudy. Weekly fun fact. Here are some sun facts because you are having a lot of sun this weekend. Did you know that sunlight boosts serotonin, which makes people feel happy? And did you know that clouds look white because they are reflecting sunlight? And did you know that sunlight has vitamin D in it? Isn't that so cool? I hope you liked listening to this. Thank you for listening, Brooklyn!
0: Brooklyn, USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias.
2: And me, Emily Bogosian,
4: And me, Shirin Barry.
2: And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle.
4: And me, Mayumi Sato.
0: With help this week from Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Lauren Germain, and Taylor Cook. If you want to send us a message, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how. And if you'd rather reach out the old-fashioned way, call us at 917-719-0021 and tell us your name, where you're calling from, how to reach you, and anything else you want to get off your chest. We're here when you need us, and we can't wait to hear from you. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. And while you're there, follow at Brick Brooklyn for updates on all the arts, music, and cultural programming we're beaming right into your living room on Brick at Home. And if you want to brush up on your beaming skills, check the show notes for a link to Brick's online media education portal. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.
3: I really thought you were going to say something about the woodpecker, Charlie. I really thought that <laughs> right before the call started, the woodpecker revealed himself again. Keep my eyes out. Yeah. Um, but I hope he joins us again.
2: I'm sure he will. He's, he seems to be a quite
3: regular fellow.